Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So what was the best meal that you ever had? Okay, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What was the best meal that you ever had? But don't think too hard because you got to make it through the rest of the sermon before you go get lunch. But what was the best meal that you ever had? There are just some meals that just stand out more than others. Maybe it's who you eat it with. Maybe it's the special occasion. Maybe it's the location. Maybe it's the chef, right? There's some meals that just stand out more in your mind than other meals. But I want you to think, okay, what was the, what was the best meal? I'll tell you about mine. It was me and Ashley's first dates that we, we were 19 years old and Ashley said she I, I want you to take me on a date a real date right not none of this just hanging out with friends that some of you guys do but a real sit down dinner date and so being 19 I was like I'm gonna take her to the fanciest restaurant in Orange Texas Chili's <laughs> And so I took her to Chili's, and, and, and as we go, and because um, when you're 19, you just you just got to do what you got to do. So we go to we go to Chili's, and I really like this girl, and I'm kind of anxious, and I want her to, to like me, and so I ordered a salad. That that's just that's me, okay, right? Um, take my man card now, but I ordered a salad, and um, I, but I kid you not, Ashley, she ordered a full rack of ribs, loaded mashed potatoes, cinnamon apples, and a chocolate molten cake. And she ate all of it. <laughs> yes, thank you. And, and, and so uh, I know what you're thinking. You're like, where did she put it all? After 12 years, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but but uh, that was the day I was like, man, I'm going to marry this girl. But first, I need to get a better job so I can afford to feed her. Uh, <laughs> But that was the day that changed everything. That was the meal that changed everything because for me, that was the best meal. So what is the best meal that that you've ever had? And that's what we're going to be talking about today because just as food is necessary for your your physical or your relational life, it's also necessary for your spiritual life. And, And so today we're going to talk about the best meal, the meal that Jesus gives. Some people, they call it the Eucharist. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Um, Some people call it Holy Communion. Uh, Just whatever you call it, just don't call me late. But it's important, right, that Jesus gives us this meal because it's the best meal. And so we're going to look at communion. And here's the sermon title today. Jesus gives us communion to be the church. And so we're going to look from the Apostle Paul um, in in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. The Apostle Paul, he's going to be writing about the importance of communion in the context of community. And so I I want to read, here's how he begins, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Okay, uh uh-oh, it's not starting off in a very good place, right? He starts off by saying, hey, you guys are not doing a good job, right? We're we're not very happy. We're not very pleased. I I don't really have a lot of good things to say to you. Have you ever gotten a text and the person's like, hey, we need to talk? Do you you know the anxiety that's in that? You're like, uh, talk about what, right? What did I do? Like, what's going on? There's just, there's just an anxiety. Now imagine if God wrote us a letter. He says, hey, redemption, we need to talk. You're like, uh, I got a letter from God. Yay. Oh, it's not a good letter. Uh, and so that's kind of what's happening for the Corinthians. They're, they're not in a very good spot. Here's why. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it's for the worse, When you come, you're not actually making the church better. You're actually, you guys are making things more difficult. You're actually making things worse because you're not gathering for the right reasons. That you're not treating people with equality and dignity and respect and you're not showing them value. In fact, when you come, you're not making things better. In fact, you're actually making things worse. Here's why. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about divisions I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order for that those who are genuine, that they may be recognized. And so there's division in the church. Let me just say this, that there is still division in the church. That there was division then, there's still division today. That not everybody who comes to church actually comes to church for the right reasons. Right? Not everybody comes to, you know, to, to serve, but some come to be served. Not everybody comes to give, some come to take. That some people, they come to church to, to contribute. Other people, they come to church just to consume. Some people are in the church for the right reasons because they love Jesus. Some people are there for the wrong reasons because they love their own agenda. And so in the church, there's, there's divisions. And this is the context that's happening in the Corinthian church. And here's what he says. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So he's connecting these two to communion between the bread and the cup. 
for in each one, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. So you get up and you go to the line to take communion. The bread's right there. And then you just make yourself a sandwich and you eat the whole thing, right? You're like, what? You just ate all of that, really? And there's no more for anybody else? You ate the whole thing. And then he goes, another one gets drunk. So you drank all the wine. So you're at the communion table, just taking a shot, right? You're feeling pretty tipsy, having a good time. Everybody else is totally annoyed. Right? You drank all the wine. I love this, verse 22, he says, he, sa- he says what? Right? There's an exclamation point. Right? There's some emphasis on this. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, you did that? Seriously, what? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? He's like, can't you go get breakfast before you come? Can you swing by Starbucks and pick something up before you come in the doors? Do you have to eat all of the bread? Do you have to drink all of the wine? Or do you despise the church of God and you humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There's this new wave of idealism that's been sweeping across the church for the last decade or so, and I I like to call it the Back to Acts movement. Maybe some of you have kind of heard this. It's from people who are kind of raised in the church. They have a church experience, um, but they become bitter and frustrated and jaded towards the expression of the local church, and so they'll say, oh, we don't really need the church. We need to be like the early church. We need to be like the first church. We need to go back to be like the church in the book of Acts, because the, the church in Acts, well, they were perfect, right? The early church church, the first church, they had no problems. I mean, they didn't have any buildings, right? It was just the people and everybody lived in communes and they were happy and hippies and, you know, they were sharing everything and they, you know, made potluck meals and everything was perfectly fine and they were praying and, you know, there was miracles and rainbows and butterflies. It was great. We need to be like the early church. We need to be like the first church. There's only one problem with that. I do not commend you. Right? Yeah, it, it doesn't work because the early church, they had their problems. The first church, yeah, they had problems. In fact, every church for the last 2,000 years has problems. You know why? Because it has people. And as long as there are people in a the church, there's always going to be problems. In fact, it, it only took five chapters in the book of Acts before the early church to pretty much start to fall apart. Right? In Acts chapter 5, we see the Hellenists, right? They're being overlooked for the distribution of food from the local food pantry because they're not technically Jewish. And, and then we see that um, you know, the, the rich are overlooking the poor for the distribution at the potluck meal after church. You have you know, Paul calling Peter a racist to his face. John Mark abandons the mission in the middle of the ocean. I mean, things aren't going very well. And as Paul's planting churches, uh, there's this beautiful, dysfunctional, amazing wreck of a church called Corinth. And what's, what's fascinating is in every single letter that Paul writes, he actually has a rebuke to the church, but he takes a particular joy in just laying it to the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, whew, man, those guys... They were jacked. The Corinthians were kind of like your uncle, um, who you're flipping through the channels, you wouldn't be surprised to see on cops. Like that's, that's the church in Corinth. And so, so Paul, he writes this letter, and it really is a fascinating letter. If, if you get time to go home this week and, and to read it, okay, it's, it's, it's interesting. Because he starts off by, it's like, hey, I praise God for you because you've received more grace than anybody else. Now, on the surface, you think, wow, that's a really nice thing to say, until you realize the only reason you get grace is because of your sin. So the more grace you get, the more sin you have. And so he's like, you guys have received more grace. They're like, yay, wait a minute. <laughs> like, what are you trying to say? He's like, you guys are the worst. Like, out of all the other churches, you guys, you guys are, you guys are terrible. And so he's basically saying you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. That's how he opens the letter. And then he just goes on this diatribe railing on them for all of their practices of not actually being the church or living to God's purpose. He's like, okay, you guys, you, you guys have a big mess. You got a lot of things going on. So what we need to do is we need to settle and get in some things straight. So the Corinthians, they, they come in um, and he's like, okay, we need to settle some things. We need to get some things straight. So tell the guy who's sleeping with his mom that he needs to knock it off, right? Okay, tell all the people who are getting drunk that you you don't get drunk. No, you can't worship false gods. No, you can't go to the temples and have sex with prostitutes, right? And then he he just starts correcting things. He tells the crazy charismatic lady with the tambourine that she needs to park it because she's embarrassing everybody. He tells the single dudes that they need to keep their pants on. He tells the married couples, you need to take your pants off. And so it really is quite a fascinating (laughs) book. I I I would encourage you, go home and read, but there's this one section that stands out above the rest and that's the issue of communion. And so I'm not trying to rail on the, uh, the church in Corinth because to be honest, my early Christian walk was very Corinthian-esque. 
Okay, my, my early Christian walk, I received a lot of grace during those years. Uh, because I, I remember whenever we were um, new to faith, right, I, I, I wanted to get to know the Bible, I wanted to read, I wanted to be in community, and so I invited a couple of buddies over, and I'm like, hey, you know what, let's, let's start a Bible study. And that's what we did. And, and so we were like, okay, um, what's the formula for our Bible study? Well, we're going to get together, okay, we're going to read the Bible, we'll pray for one another, smoke cigarettes, and drink beer. Like, that was, that was, our, that was our Bible study, and, and so we called it BYOBB, bring your own beer and Bible. It was like, you know, punk rock anarchy Bible club. That's what we would do. And we'd get together and we'd, we'd read our Bible. We'd argue, we'd fight, we'd debate, we'd get drunk, we'd pass out. And then next Wednesday we'd get together and we'd do it all over again. Like that was the formula. And so in those years I received a lot of grace. Some of you are like really excited for community groups. That's not the way they work anymore. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to get drunk at our community groups. But I, I do remember when we were kind of doing this little brief study over first um, Corinthians, uh, we came across this section. We we're like, Hey, we should, we should take communion. That would be really nice. Right, you know, let's take communion together, and so that's what we determined we would do. And so one person brought, you know, some like Wonder Kids bread over, and then uh, and we got everything together. But another person brought a gallon of Carlos Rossi sangria, and so we're like, oh yeah, we're gonna take communion tonight, baby. And so we got together to to take communion. We pulled the thing, dipped it, and I was like, okay, that was nice. Like that was really sweet. You know, we had this great moment of taking communion. And then the question was this: What do we do with the rest of all this wine? So we did what any other 22-year-old would do. We drank it. We drank a whole gallon of, of, of wine, and, 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 and we got drunk. And we had a great time. And uh, we, we passed out, woke up, had a hangover and a headache. And I was like, you know what? I should keep reading my Bible. And so uh, I came over here. I was like, what is it to say? Oh, yeah, do not get drunk on communion. And I was like, dope, totally missed that part. Um, and so I called my buddy. I was like, hey, uh, we did not do this right, because just the section before says don't do this. And that's exactly what we did. And so that's the day that I learned to read the Bible in context and not just picking and choosing parts to be able to fit in a gathering. But anyway, uh, and so I'm just trying to say, I'm not trying to knock the Corinthian church because we're a lot more like the Corinthians than we would care to admit. So here's, here's what I want to say. Don't fall into the trap to think that the first church was perfect and that our church is not. Don't fall into the trap to think, oh, well, the early church, they had everything together. And then ever since then, well, the church is fractured and flawed and the church is broken and we don't need. OK, don't fall into that trap, because for the last 2000 years, all churches have problems. The church then, they had problems. Our church still today, yet we have, we have problems because that's what it means to be a church, imperfect people following after a perfect savior. And so as long as there's people in the church, there's gonna be problems. And the moment you find a perfect church, do me a favor, leave, right? Because you're gonna ruin it because you're not perfect. In, in life, there's two categories. Okay, perfect, imperfect. Okay, Jesus, everybody else. Okay, and so you're not perfect, but that's actually one of the reasons that we are a church, because we're imperfect people following after a perfect Savior. So the context that's happening in Corinth right here is that there are divisions in the church. And the division here is specifically between the rich and the poor. That the rich, right, they're oppressing and they're overlooking and they're taking advantage of those who are poor and the, the poor go without. Now, this is still a big division in churches today between the rich and the poor. But because I know you and some of you, you're going to hear this and you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Right? And then others of you, you're going to hear that and you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me because, well, I'm not rich. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to take a step back and I want to show that this actually applies to, to all of us in, in, in really um, very practical ways. Okay, so let's just not think in terms of rich and poor. Hey, let's think in terms of black and white, of, of men, women, young, old. Okay, let, let's think in terms of, you know, Democrat, Republican. Okay, let's think in terms of, you know, hip-hop, you know, country music, skinny jeans, cargo shorts, whatever it is. Okay, in our life, this is very important because, because, we divide. Now, in our life, what we do is we, we tend to build walls. That we build walls to keep people out and say, okay, okay, these are the people that I like, and these are the people that I associate with, and these are the people that I agree with, and you know, these are the people that I share the same interests and hobbies and affinities, and so I'm going to gather with them, and then I'm going to neglect and ignore all of these people, because these are my people, those are not my people. And, and so we tend, to, we tend to gravitate towards people like us, and we tend to ignore the people who are unlike us. And so in our lives, here's what we do. We build walls that we build walls to keep people out. And some of you are thinking, well, what does this have to do with communion? In fact, this has everything to do with communion because what we see at communion, Jesus doesn't build walls, 
Jesus builds a table. That, that Jesus doesn't build walls to keep people out, but rather he builds a table to, to bring people in. And so at communion, what we see is this beautiful act of community that is, that is happening where Jesus is saying, if you believe in Jesus, if you belong to me, if you want to be like me, then everyone is welcomed at my table. If you love me, serve me, give your life to me, then I've prepared a place for you. No matter what your background, no matter what your upbringing is, no matter your previously held beliefs, no matter what, your past, your present, your future, there is a place for you at this family because Jesus makes us this family and Jesus makes a meal so that we can gather together to eat regardless of of your race, your income, your ethnicity, your political affiliation, that you are welcomed at this table because the church, the church is a place to where enemies become family and strangers become friends. That Jesus builds a table. So quite literally, the act of taking communion is the art of being a church. And so the Corinthians, they totally missed this. So Paul's writing to course correct, and he's going to teach them what communion actually is. Here's what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord, okay, that's Jesus, what I also delivered to you. So apparently, whenever Paul was planting this church um, a couple of years previously, he must have done a sermon series similar to the one we're doing right now, to be the church, because he had already taught them what communion actually is over, and now he's having to remind them. This is very important for some of us because we grew up in churches that talked about communion, but we forgot what it meant. And we would take communion, but we're like, eh, I don't really understand what that's about. And so Paul's having to reintroduce this subject to the church at at, at Corinth. He says, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so for me, Growing up, communion was probably a lot like it was for the Corinthians, minus the drunkenness because that came later. But I would take communion all the time, but I didn't really, I didn't really understand what it meant. Like I had the context, I did not have the context rather of what it means to be the church. It was just something that we did once a month and we were like, oh, here's the, you know, here's the juice and here's the cracker and let's just get over with it and we can move on to the rest of the service. For me, there was no real significance or, or benefit to, to taking communion growing, growing up. Um, but I do remember the first time that I experienced the presence of God through the elements and that, that communion actually bared strong significance for me. We were planting a church in, the, in, in Houston. Uh, our church met in downtown, and we met in a theater. Now, five Sundays out of the year, they would kick us out because they had some big play coming in, and we were unable to gather, and so we became homeless for that week, and we didn't have anywhere to gather as a church, but there was a local church across the street that welcomed us, and they said, hey, you guys uh, can come and worship with us, and so that's exactly what we did. Now, this church was different. Um, different from the way that I grew up, because I grew up in Assemblies of God, kind of, you know, non-denominational contemporary type church, and this was a very high church. And, and at this church, um, the pastor, as he was preaching, he, he didn't do an altar call. He invited everybody to come and take communion. And, and he's like, you know, if you're a Christian, we want you to take communion. If you're not yet a Christian, like, we invite you to give your life to Jesus, and then you can come and you can take communion with us. And I thought, well, that's that's... That's cool. And then as soon as he finished praying, everybody stood up, and then they just got in line. I was like, whoa, hey, what's, what's happening here? Like, I, feel, I feel like I'm left out. Right? Some of you, you're new, and you're like, as soon as we dismiss, you're like, everyone stands up and gets in line. You're like, oh, what am I doing? Is there a line? Do I need to get in that line? Um, and, and that's where I was at the first time. I didn't really know how to respond. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to jump in line, and I'm walking forward, and, um, and, and they pull the piece off, and they, they do you know, dip it in the cup, and um, and, and so I, I walk up and I look, it's an elderly couple, okay, probably in their 80s. Um, and I look at the man and he holds the bread and he hands it to me and he says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. He looks me straight in my eye with full assurance. I was like, huh, that's very personal. That's... That's very real to me. And then I go over to the old woman and with uh, just tears in her eyes. 
with a smile on her face, with joy in her voice, she says, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. That's, that's very real. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit, he, he brought to my remembrance what this actually represents. And in that moment, when that man, he held that and he said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. The Spirit brought what that actually means, that Jesus' body was broken, that he was beaten and bloodied and battered and bruised, that Jesus was nailed on a tree as the curse for my sins, and that Jesus, he is the penalty, he is the punishment, he is the payment, he is the Passover of the wrath of God in my place, that Jesus' body was broken for you, for you, for me. That Jesus' body was broken. And then as I had the wine, I remember Jesus' blood was poured out. That Jesus bled. Okay, Jesus literally, he bled. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was, was betrayed, he, he prayed. And he, he saw the cross before him. He knew the ultimate reason that he came. And in that garden, Jesus prayed. And under so much stress and, and duress that he literally sweated blood. The capillaries in his head, they ruptured and Jesus sweated blood. And then as Jesus was, was um, betrayed and he was brought before the Sanhedrins and the, the high priest, as they, they, they put him on, they beat him. They, they ripped his beard from his face. They blackened his eye. That they, that they disfigured him and then they took a crown of thorns and they drilled it into his skull and Jesus bled. That as he's brought before Pilate and the Roman officials that he is condemned to death, that he is beaten, he is flogged, he is scourged, he is whipped to the point to where that his flesh hung off of his back as it was ribboned, his bones were exposed and blood flowed. Most people died from blood loss from the scourging before they ever even made it to that cross. But Jesus did not waver. Jesus did not lose his strength. Jesus persevered and he goes to the cross at Calvary where they take his hands and they take his feet and they drive seven inch railroad spike nails through the most painful centers of the human body through the nerves of his hands and feet and as Jesus hangs there on that cross struggling and straining and trying to catch his breath as he drowns in his own tears and his own sweat and his own urine and vomit and blood Jesus breathes his last breath and he says, it is finished and he dies. And then a Roman guard takes a spear, shoves it through his side, ruptures the heart sack and from his side flow water and blood because of the exhaustion, the dehydration, the blood loss. Jesus had nothing left to pour out. Jesus bled for you. In that moment, the Spirit brought all of these things to remembrance, things that we take for granted a lot. Jesus' broken body. Jesus shed blood for you and for me and for us. That he would do that. That he would give his life for mine, that he would trade his death for my life. And in that moment, communion became very real. That it wasn't just something we did on Sundays. There was something significant about it. And I remember thinking, that woman with tears in her eyes and a smile on her face and joy in her voice as she said, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. As she lovingly and humbly and gracefully served me communion, I remember thinking, she knows something I don't know. She knows something about God that I, I don't understand, and she obviously knows something about this that I, I, I don't know. And so that, that set me on a study to figure out, what do I actually believe about communion? Why do we take communion as a church? 
Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to pull out five reasons that we take communion from this text. What the Apostle Paul says is he talks about what the Lord Jesus teaches. But before I do that, very briefly, uh, I want to just tell you what I believe about communion. Okay, um, this has actually been one of the most divisive subjects in church history. Over the last 2,000 years, many denominations, theologians, scholars, they've just been in arguments about what is, you know, the right way to take communion or what communion actually means, which I find amazing because in the last 30 years, nobody really cares. But for the last 2,000 years, man, people have really fought over this. And so here's, here's what I believe in regards to communion. Okay, some of you, you grew up um, Catholic. Okay, so in the Catholic Church, they teach what's called transubstantiation. So this means that um, the, the cracker and the wine or the, you know, the bread and the wine are literally the body and blood of Jesus. So when the priest holds it up and blesses it, and whenever you partake, it turns into the body and the blood of Jesus. So they, they hold to that. Okay, we don't believe that. Okay, others, if you, you grew up high church, so um, like or, um, Orthodox or um, Lutheran or uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, and they would hold to what's called um, consubstantiation, which means that it's in and under and around. That is the physical presence of Jesus, but it's all a mystery. We don't really know how it works. Okay, and, and so some people hold to that. Okay, we don't believe that either. Uh, others of you, you were raised in a, a tradition that teaches what's called a memorial feast. Okay, this is by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, so just a side rule, if you can't pronounce his name, you can't trust his theology, but this is what Ulrich Zwingli would say, um, is that it was just, a, it was just a, a memorial feast. So this is Southern Baptist, this is me and the Assemblies of God, this is what most you know, evangelical churches teach. It's just a memorial feast. It's a good idea. Jesus did it, so we should do it, but there's no real significance behind it besides it's just a symbol. It's just something that we do, something that we do. so they take it once a month, maybe you know, once a year, because it's just a memorial for us. Okay? That's why they call it ordinances. So I hold to um, what... Uh, is called Real Presence. Uh, it's by a guy named John Calvin and some of the early reformers. This is what they taught, that it's not the, the literal presence of Jesus through the, body, the, the, the blood and the you know, body, it's the spiritual presence. That in communion, that Jesus is spiritually present with the believer through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit whenever we partake. So whenever you partake, Jesus is spiritually present with us through the working of the Holy Spirit, and so you can experience his presence during that act. So that's what I hold to. You don't have to hold to that, okay, to, to be a member of our church. That's just what I, I believe, and you can go and talk to your community group, and you can argue, and you can debate, and you can figure out what you believe, but that is what I, that is what I believe. So now that we've done that, let me give you five reasons as to why we take communion here as a church. First is this, it's for fellowship. Okay, what's the big problem in the Corinthian church? It's a lack of fellowship, right? Fellowship is when God's people get together for, for God's purposes and we connect and we share stories and, and, and we live out our life together. It's for fellowship. Now, you don't have to be friends with everyone in your fellowship, okay, but it's about having the same purpose, the same goals, the same directions. So the Corinthian church, all of their problems stem from this lack of fellowship because they've built the walls. They say, okay, you look like this, you act like this, you talk like this. Well, I don't do those things and so I don't want to associate with you. So you you're dressed this way, you voted for who, right? You listen to 94.1, like you have terrible taste in music. Like I can't be, I can't be friends with you. And so they, they disassociate and they, they break fellowship with one another. Now listen, that's the way that the world thinks. Okay, seriously, the world gathers in two spheres. Okay, think of okay, proximity and affinity. This is the way that the world operates. We gather in proximity. So we're in the same physical location, so I need to be nice to you so that way my life goes better. Right, so we work in the same office, we, we go to the same college classes, right? we're next door neighbors and we share the same air and that's basically all that we have. Right? So I have to look at your ugly mug every single day and so I'm gonna be nice to you so that way my life just gets a little bit easier. Right? You have proximity with one another. Other people gather around what's called affinity, hobbies, interests, desires, life stages. Right? These are your affinities. So think, okay, oh, you like baseball? I love baseball. Right? Oh, you like shopping? I like shopping. You like that band? I like that band. You like vodka? I like vodka. We're basically the same person. And this is how we, this is how we, we live our life. So we, we gather by affinity or, or we gather by proximity, but, but here's what happens. You change the location, you change the relationship. 
Right? You, you change the hobbies and interests, you change the affinities, you change the relationship. Have you noticed that? That as soon as you, you know, get a new job, like, where'd your friends go? As soon as you, you know, graduate, uh, as soon as you have a kid, right, w- w- life stage change, like, w- where'd all my friends go? As soon as you sober up and stop acting like an idiot, all of your friends are gone. Why? Because you change the relationship. You change the affinity, you change the proximity, the relationship dies. Because there's nothing really there sustaining that. Like, think about it. When was the last time you talked to that guy from math class in high school? Right? Probably from graduation. Right? Because you change the affinity, you change the proximity, the relationship dies. But as Christians in the church, we don't gather around affinity and proximity. We gather around divinity, namely Jesus, that we are Jesus's people living for Jesus's purpose. And so no matter how different we are in this, we're the same, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Jesus saves you. Jesus saved me. Jesus forgives you. So no matter what difference we have in this, we are all the same. And so the Lord tells us through preparing a table, he says, what divides you will never be greater than what unites you. And so in the church, when we take communion, it's, it's literally an act of fellowship that we're remembering. And, and Jesus is showing us that in Christ, we were all the same. So it's an act of fellowship. But I'll tell you this, during communion response, if there's a person that you're estranged with, go ask them to take communion with you. That if there's, if there's a relational strain, um, if there's any unforgiveness, if there's any bitterness, if there's any division between you and another person, maybe it's you know, a husband and wife, maybe it's with the kids, maybe it's with you know, somebody who's in the gathering, maybe it's somebody in the church, maybe it's somebody in your community group. Do me a big favor. Find that person, ask them, will you pray with me? Will you take communion with me so that God can make us one again? It's an act of fellowship for the church. The second, it's an act of thanksgiving. Here's what it says. He says that um, Jesus broke bread and he gave thanks. Okay, now, to be honest, this should be deeply convicting for us because we tend not to be very thankful people. Right? We tend not to be very thankful and we tend not to be very grateful. What we tend to think about more often is what we don't have instead of what we actually do. Right? This, should be, this should be very convicting for us because Jesus simply took bread and he gave thanks. And so what communion is showing us is that if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. That in Christ, you have everything that you need. That God is our provider, Jesus is our sustainer, and in this life, we get Jesus, and anything other than that, that's a bonus. But Jesus is enough for us. One of my favorite things to do is to take communion with my wife. I love taking um, communion with, with my wife uh, during their gatherings. And she comes to the 930 service because it just works out better for our family, right? I mean, Esther takes a nap before noon, plus there's donuts and coffee. And hey, uh, we like the 930. And yes, that is a plug for the 930. If you can make it to there, we're going to need your seat. But nevertheless, um, she comes to the 930 and, we, and we, we, we take communion. I love taking communion with my wife because I'm just so thankful. So thankful for what God has done in my life that I have, a, I have an amazing wife, I have a, a beautiful little girl, I get to serve at a great church. I'm just, I'm just very thankful. And when me and Ashley were talking this week about what do you think about when you think about communion? Have you thought about that? Like when you go to the table, like what's running through your mind? Like what do you think about as you're, as you're you know, taking in communion? I asked Ashley, and she said, well, I think about Jesus. I think about the broken body, shed blood, Jesus in my place, dying for my sins. I think about Jesus. She's like, is that right? I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally right. She's like, well, what do you think about? I said, I really think about how thankful I am. I think about how, how, how thankful I am because of what Jesus has done in my life. That 12 years ago, I was strung out on drugs. 12 years ago, I was drunk. 12 years ago, I was depressed. 12 years ago, I was totally hopeless. I was a wreck. I had no one, I had nowhere to go, I had nowhere to turn. I literally had nothing. And Jesus saved me. And, and, and I could, and Jesus, he, he loved me, he, he welcomed me, that Jesus would, would bring me and he would get me connected into a, a decent church and the people there, they would help me get cleaned up and Jesus literally changed my life. I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for Jesus. Like, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for Jesus that my whole life has been changed forever because of him. And so am I thankful when I take communion? Yeah. Every time I take communion, I just, I just think about who I am now because of Jesus, what he has done for me, 
how he has saved me, how he has transformed my life. So I'm very thankful when I take communion. Are you thankful for what God has done in your life? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you? You should be. And that's just to show us how how thankful we are, even just by taking bread and breaking it. Jesus gave thanks. So yeah, I'm I'm very thankful. But also, it's it's to remind us. He says, as long as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Martin Luther, the, the, the great reformer, he says that we need to have the gospel beaten into our heads daily. Why? Because we're prone to forget. Right? Isn't that so true? Like, don't we just forget? You're like, this is the greatest news ever. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus lives. Like, sin has been forgiven. Yay, Jesus. What's on TV? Right, oh, somebody cut me off in traffic. Right, potty training a two-year-old. All of a sudden, the greatest news, we forget. And so communion is a, for remembrance. That it's a, it's a visual reminder of a spiritual reality. That you need to be reminded because you're very quick to forget. One of the questions I get asked all the time is this. Um, uh, why does Redemption Church take communion every single week? How many of you are new and you've kind of wondered that? You're like, that's a little different, right? Is it okay? Can we take communion every week? Is that a normal thing to do? Like, I don't know. Is it going to lose its value? Maybe it's going to become a ritual, right? People are like, I don't know. Can, can we do that? That's one, of, that's one of the questions that get asked all the time. Um, and, and so I'll give you some reasons as to why we take communion every single week. One of the things that we're trying to answer in this sermon series is what makes Redemption Church different? Okay, um, on the surface, the answer is nothing. Right, there's nothing different about us. Okay, we do the same things that all churches for the last 2,000 years have done. We worship, we preach, we take communion, and we baptize people. Okay, all churches for the last 2,000 years, this is, this is what churches, churches do. So it's not what we do that's different, okay, but sometimes the way we do things, yeah, that's a little different from our own upbringings. And so one of the things that might be different for some of you is is the way that we, we take communion and the fact that we take communion every, every week. And so how many of you have wondered that? Why do we take communion every week? Okay, I'll give you a couple of answers. Okay, first is this, because I know a lot of you, I know your stories and I know your struggles, and I know that it took every ounce of effort and energy and emotion that you had just to walk through those doors today. That in life, you are so beat up, you are so discouraged, you are so overwhelmed. It took all of you just to drag yourself through those doors. And so when you walk in, we want you to know there's a place for you. That the Lord made a place just for you. That this is nourishment for your soul. That the Lord, he loves you, he cares for you, he welcomes you into this family. And so we do it for those who are hurting and struggling. We do it for those who are suffering. So that way, when you come in and you take, you know that there's strength to continue on. So we do it for that. We also do it for those who come maybe once a month or once every three months, right? And you're like, oh man, I haven't been there in so long. Am I even allowed to go back? I don't even know, right? And so we do it for you because we don't want you to miss out on what God has for you. We, we do it for you because when you walk in those doors, we want you to know that you are loved and that we have been praying for you and we have prepared a place for you as well and that you are welcome here and we want you to be a part of the church. So for those of you who come every single week who are beaten up and hurting, there's a place for you. For those of you who, who come very infrequently, there's a place for you because we want you to get connected. And so we do it for those reasons. Okay? And, and another reason that we do it um, is uh, because of church history. Okay, see, the Bible, it doesn't say like, this is the way that you're supposed to take communion, right? The Bible doesn't really do that, right? Here's what it says. It just says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So I think that that gives great freedom to the pastor and to the church to be able to implement um, how they take communion because it just simply says, eh, do this, right? And, but here's what we do know, um, that throughout church history, uh, the church took communion every week. Okay, so there's an ancient manuscript known as the Didache. It's basically like a church bylaws and um, order of worship service and liturgy for the first church up until like the 300s. And in the Didache, it, it says that they took communion every single week. In addition, the early church in the book of Acts, what you'll see is that it was a regular thing for them. Uh, they, they took, you know, 
they gathered in temples, which is kind of like what we're doing. It's the, it's the big Sunday gathering, and they would break bread. And then they also met in their homes throughout the week in community groups, and they would break bread there. And so we see that they, they did this regularly. Okay, not once a month, not once a quarter, not once every presidential election. They took, it, they took it on a regular basis as they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. And so this idea of church communion um, taking it only once a month or annually, that's actually a, a modern invention. That over the last 2,000 years, pretty much all churches, they've partook in Holy Communion on a weekly basis. So I'm not saying that there's a right way and a wrong way. I'm just saying, like, hey, this is just the way that, that we do it. And here are some of the reasons. But have you also wondered, like, why does redemption take it the way they do? Like, if you walk to the table and there's the bread and there's the cup and you got to do the whole dip thing right, it's a little interesting. Right? Some of you, you grew up in churches um, like, you know, like I did to where uh, communion, right, uh, you got the little shot glass and the cracker that was old as you. Okay? And then they had a gold plate that wasn't really gold. It was more like aluminum that somebody spray painted. And then they had some old white dudes with gloves trying to pass it down the aisle, calling the ushers, big old thing, right? And, and that's the way that I, I took communion. You're like, oh, I'll take this thing, move on, right? Some of you, you grew up where it looks like they got their communion from Ikea, it's like the two-for-one cup, you know what I'm talking about, where you like, you got the little plastic thing on top and you have to try to pull it off and you're fumbling with it and maybe you could take it before the pastor says amen, right? Some of you, that's, that's where you went. Some of you Catholic, right? Catholic, there we go. And so whenever you go to take communion, uh, it was an old guy in a dress and he took the cracker and he put it in your mouth, but you had to take a class to be able to drink the wine, right? And so that's, that's kind of what some of you are. And then you come to redemption and then it's like, you know, there's like, you know, college students like holding bread and cups and people are just dipping it in. It's like, oh gosh, what's going on over there? Um, so I want you to know that we actually, there's, there's a term for that. And we've actually thought through all of this. Uh, so what that's called is intinction. Okay, but you didn't know that, right? It's called intinction, which literally means to rip and dip. Okay, rip and dip, baby. So, like, so when you come in, you pull a piece off, you dip it in the cup, and then you're able to partake. But here's the reason why we do it the way. Right? Because it's a visual reminder of a spiritual reality. So taking communion in this way, it stimulates all of your senses. It causes a deep awareness to what you're actually, to what you're actually doing. It's one of those things that cause you just to stop, to, to kind of pull back and to to savor and to sense what you're actually, actually doing. And so you, you pull the piece off, you can touch it. As you look at the other person, you, you can see, you can see them and you can see the church and you can see us worship and then you can, you can taste it and you can smell it and you can hear the person saying, this is the body, this is the blood and it stimulates all of your senses and it, it's a way for us to, to bring a deeper awareness into what we're actually doing. And so, no, we don't, we, it's not losing its meaning by taking it every week. Like, do you eat with your family every week, every day? Does it lose its meaning? No. Right? And so when we eat together as a family, it doesn't lose its meaning. It actually deepens the relationship. So it's a, it's a, spiritual, it's a spiritual reminder, or it's a physical remembrance of a spiritual reality. So we need to do it so that way we can, we can remember. In addition to that, number, number four, it's for proclamation. Now, when you're taking communion, you're proclaiming the Lord's death, that you believe, you belong, you want to be like Jesus, and you want to be a part of Jesus' church. It's an act of proclamation that Jesus, he lived the perfect life, Jesus died the painful death, Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus is coming again, and I'm standing in line with all Christians, and these are my brothers and sisters, and I'm proclaiming that I am a Christian. And so you're presenting yourself in front of the church, in front of God, in front of others that you believe. It's a proclamation. It's a declarative act. That's why every single week whenever I give the communion instructions, I say, hey, if you are a Christian, you're welcome to join us for communion. If you believe that Jesus died the substitutionary death in your place, if you believe that Jesus rose from the grave to forgive you of your sins, if you believe that Jesus is coming again, then hey, you are welcome to join us for communion. But if you're not a Christian, you're not welcome. Okay, we love you. We're not trying to exclude you from anything. Okay, we actually do this for you. We love you. We're glad that you're here. But communion's not for you. Right? Because you're making a proclamation of something you don't believe in. So there's no, there's no benefit for you. Like, it's not going to help you in any way just by, by you taking communion. Because, you know, there's nothing in it for you. I, there's no spiritual presence for you. 
right? For you, it's just soggy bread. It doesn't taste good, right? It's not gonna fill you up and it's not gonna last very long. You might as well wait till you can go to Lupe Tortilla afterwards, right? There's nothing in this for you as a non-Christian, right? Because you're making a declaration of something you actually don't believe in. So don't do that. Don't, don't pretend like you're something you're not. If you're not a Christian, hey, we love you. We, we, we do this for you, and we have some other ways in which we want to include you in our service. A couple of things that you can do as a non-Christian when we take communion, okay, you can just stand or sit in your seat, and you can just think about the message. You can sing songs with us. Um, you could also go to the back, and we have a prayer team who's amazing, and they would love to pray for you, uh, and they would pray for you for anything, maybe you know, relational, emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever it is, people would love to pray for you. So you can do a couple of those things, um, and, and you, could also, you could also just give your life to Jesus. And then if you become a Christian, repent of your sins, guess what? You can take communion with us all you want, because we would love to have you, but if you're not a Christian, okay, we, we need you, we need you to, to, to not join us for communion. Not because we don't love you, but because this is something different. And so when you take it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. That Jesus' broken body, Jesus shed blood in my place, I've received his grace. Yeah, I believe that. So it's a proclamation. And then number five, it's for expectation. Now this, man, this is my favorite. I love this one. And it's a shame because people don't really talk about it very often, but this one is my my favorite. One of the ways in which you can study the Bible is um, through the Testaments, right? Old Testament, New Testament. I don't have enough time to teach all of this, but I did write a blog and it's on the website. You can go and find it. Um, if you want to be very studious and get extra credit, you can do that. So I, I wrote a blog and um, one of the ways people study is Old Testament, New Testament. Some look at it in terms of covenants, right? God's relationship with his people. So, you know, Adam and, and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and then the new covenant. And some people look at it in terms of dispensations. Like here's the epochs and different periods of time in which God works. But one way, that you can read the Bible is actually through the meals. You can look at the meals that God prepares for people and you can see the way that God is actually working. So let's just think about it. What was the first meal? Well, it's in the Garden of Eden, right? So when God made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden, right? All the fruits and vegetables and spices and herbs and organic, non-GMO, Whole30 approved foods, like all right there for you. And so they could have whatever it is. God prepares a meal for them in the garden, but he says, you can't have one thing. What is that? can't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? They eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they believed the lie from the serpent, Satan. They were deceived. They sinned. They fell. They rebelled. And subsequently, every single person ever since then has been born with a sin nature. And, and this culminates into the second meal known as Passover. We see this in the book of Exodus. Whenever God is delivering his people from the oppression and the bondage and the slavery of Pharaoh in the nation of Egypt. And so God, he does these succession of miracles and he delivers his people. And so as he's delivering them, he tells them, you need to take this meal as a remembrance of a Passover that when that through one of the miracles, death literally passed over God's people. And so he, he instituted this meal as Passover. And so for 2000 years, God's people, they would they would eat of Passover. This is actually the meal that Jesus shares with his disciples in what we call the, the Last Supper. Y'all know that, right? The painting of the Last Supper. He's actually, he's actually um, sharing Passover with them. And this is really interesting. Uh, just a side little tidbit, because I, I know you care. Um, uh, Passover, some people would say, the Last Supper was actually celebrated in Mark's house. That Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, which we're going to start studying in April, that was actually at his house. Some scholars and theologians, that's what they say. So that's just a little interesting. I'll be able to teach Passover in about two years when we get there in Mark. So you're welcome. See you then. So, um, so as he's celebrating Passover, he, he flips the whole script. He says, hey, Passover really points to me. That just as the lamb was shed for the atoning of sin, hey, I'm the lamb of God. And just as, just as the blood was poured out, my blood is going to be poured out. The body, the bread, the lamb, all of this points to me. So Jesus showed them that all of history and all of Passover ultimately points to him. He institutes communion, which is what we're talking about. But there is another meal. There's another meal, a fifth meal, and it's called the wedding feast of the lamb. 
and this is, this is the meal that I get really, really excited about because one day Jesus is going to return. One day Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus returns, uh, death will be undone. Satan, sin, hell, and the grave will ultimately be defeated. That every tear will be wiped away. That God will gather all of his people from every tribe, tongue, nation. And we'll all be in God's presence. And in that moment, God is going to prepare us a meal. And that God, he is going to, he's going to prepare us and he's going to bring us together. And in heaven, there's going to be laughing. There's going to be eating and there's going to be drinking and there's going to be partying and there's going to be music and there's going to be festivities and there's going to be celebration and there's going to be a party of food. I love that. I just, I, I love that. Some of your ideas of heaven sound more like hell, right? The way that some of you think about heaven, you're like, oh, we're just going to be a bunch of babies floating around in a halo on a cloud, wearing a diaper, playing a harp. That sounds terrible. That does sound terrible. Like you need to think, you need a bigger view of heaven. You need to think, oh man, there's gonna be there's gonna be music and there's gonna be laughing, there's gonna be drinking and partying and food, and Jesus is gonna be there, and everybody else is gonna be there. I want to be there. That's what heaven's gonna be like. It's amazing. And so when we take communion, that's what we're looking forward to. That we're looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. And that you and I, as Christians, we're standing in a continuum legacy of people from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Uh, people who have you know, looked back on the miracles that what God has done, and they look forward to the Messiah that is to come. And then when you and I take communion, we're looking back on the sacrifice of Jesus, but we're also looking forward, and we're also declaring, and we're also eagerly awaiting and anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Because one day Jesus will come back, and on that day, it's going to be a party. And that's what, we, that's what we do. We look forward with expectation. So communion's pretty awesome, right? Did you know that there was all these different elements and these different reasons that were happening when we do it? It's, it's a pretty great thing. And, and it, is, it really is important, but there is a concern. See, there's always a concern. Here's, here's how Paul says it. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner. Let me say this. There is worthy and there is unworthy. Right? There is... There is right and there is wrong. There is truth and there is error. There is sin and there is holiness. There is worthy and there is unworthy. And some people, they take communion in an unworthy manner. If so, they will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why some of you are weak and some of you have even died. Some people have died from, from taking communion. What, is, what does he mean by that? I mean, did they choke? Right? Did they have a gluten allergy? Maybe celiacs? Like, what do you mean somebody died from taking communion? Well, he says, he says some of you are weak and ill and you have died. Right, because you have drank judgment on yourself for taking communion in an unworthy manner. Sometimes there is a physical manifestation of a spiritual deficit that is happening. And for those who come into the church and they act and they pretend like everything's perfect and they're repentant and they present themselves before God and everybody and they know that they're not, that you're unwilling, unwanting, undesirous to change your drinking judgment on yourself. That you walk into the church and, and you know you're unrepentant. You know you don't care. You know you have no concern for God, for people, for his ways, or for the work of the Spirit in your life. You walk up, you say, give me some bread. And then you take and you eat and you're fake. It's an unworthy manner. It says you need to be very careful. Because in that you drink judgment on yourself. Here's how he says. But if we judge ourselves truly then we would not be judged. We live in a day and age where people think, you can't judge me. You can't say anything to me. It's my life. It's my want. It's my will. It's my life. It's 2018, right? You can't tell me what to do. Who are you to judge? If you learn to judge yourself, then you wouldn't have to worry about us. The Bible says judge yourself. Look, because you know you better than you. Judge yourself. And if you do, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. Now, because I love you and I know you, I know what's happening in a lot of your minds. Okay, right now, 
because you're you know, introverts and you're a little insecure and you have overactive imaginations, you're thinking of all the things that you've done this week. Right? You're like, here's the list, here's the catalog of all the things I said, all the things that I did that disqualify me and keep me away from taking communion. I ran the stop sign. No, I shouldn't do that, right? California rule, didn't put my blinker on. Right? You know, I, I was late for work. I didn't confirm on my planning center. I yelled at my kids. Right? I'm not worthy. So I don't want to take communion because I don't want to die because I'm not worthy. Okay, and some of you, you're, you're thinking those things. Let me set your mind at ease. Okay, that's actually not what Paul's talking about. Okay, some of you, you, you live under constant fear and shame and, and feelings like you're unworthy. And so when you read sections of scripture like this, then it just, just heaps all those things back on you and you think, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not welcome, God doesn't love me. And because of that, you miss out on what Paul's actually saying. Here, here, Paul, he's not saying, um, he's saying this. If you're worried about being unworthy, then you don't need to worry. It's those who don't care. Those are the ones that need to be concerned. But if you're worried about being unworthy, then you don't need to, to worry. Here's what Paul's saying. He's actually saying, just check your heart. Examine yourself, judge yourself to see whether or not there's anything in your life that is separating you from God or other people. Just, just examine yourself. Just, just look in and say, say, in that act of communion, say, okay, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that doesn't come from you? God, is there anything that, that, that's happening, any bitterness, any hurt, any wounds, any unforgiveness? God, is there any sin that I need to repent of? Spirit, your job is to convict me, but to point me to my righteousness. What is my identity? What is my value? What is my worth? Who do you say that I am so I can live the life that you want me to live? God, is there anything that I need to repent of? Is there anything that I need to make amends of? Show that to me. He's simply saying, just, just examine yourself. That's one of the reasons that we started giving you about five minutes between the sermon and the song, because we just want you to have an opportunity to be able to respond, right? Just in that moment, say, Holy Spirit, is there anything that I need, right? And then, and then, then take the moment to reflect, take the moment to, um, to repent, and then, then you're free to respond. It's those who don't care. It's those of you who, who come in totally unrepentant, unwilling to change, undesirous of, of any sort of affection of God's people, God's purposes. It's those of people who are unrepentant that need to be very concerned, See, some of you, some of you, you need to examine yourselves. Others of you, you're way too hard on yourself. Right? Some of you, you need to give your life to Jesus. Some of you, you need to give yourself a break. Some of you, you need to repent. Some of you, you just need to relax. Because you're so worried all the time about being unworthy. No. In communion, we're reminded that you're worthy that Jesus loves you, Jesus cares for you, Jesus prepared a table for you. You are welcomed, you are loved, you are worthy. So take and eat. The only reason you should ever abstain is if you're apathetic, entitled, indifference, and unrepentant. In that moment, you need to let the Spirit do work on you. But for those of us who are in Christ, take, eat, your sins have been forgiven. You are free, you are welcomed, you are loved, you are worthy. It's great news, isn't it? And I love that Paul closes out right here. And it's the last part, it's the last section. And he uses one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. Here's what he says. So then my brothers, oh, I love that word. My, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I, I love that Paul closes out this section. He has a strong word for the Corinthians, but, oh, but he, he ends it on such a good note. He says, he says we're brothers. This also includes the sisters, right? So brothers and sisters that we are heirs, that we are children of God that God is our, our father. Okay, I need you to grasp this. Some of you, you didn't have a dad, and so it's really hard for you to come into the church and to see relationships the way that they're supposed to be. And so I want you to see this, that God is a father, that, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he listens to you, that he provides for you, that God adopts you into his family. He sees you, he wants you, he knows you, he brings you in. He says, come here, come here. You're a part of my family now. I want you, I need you, I love you. Come here. 
and God adopts us into his family. And then Jesus becomes our prototypical big brother in which he, he goes before us. He makes a way for us. He prepares a way for us. And he's saying, come on, we got work to do. We got life to live. There's more room for you. And, and God is our father and Jesus is our brother. And that makes you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Guess what? Brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. So you don't get to pick your family, praise God. And so he brings us all in together. He says, brothers, sisters, We're a family. And guess what families do? They eat together. And some of the best meals in my life have been sitting around a family dinner table, laughing and connecting and sharing stories and pouring our hearts out and and disagreeing with one another. But over that meal, we're one. And that's why the Lord gives us a table. That's why the Lord invites us to be able to partake in communion because Jesus makes us a family. And families... Families eat together. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.